The story's told with facts and lies. I had a name, but never mind. Never mind. Never mind. The war was lost. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the B Side. It's a spin off podcast of the Film Stage show for the Film Stage website. I am Dan Mecca, and today I'm with the better half of the Film Stage podcast mini network two podcast scenario, Brian J. Rowan. What's up, Brian? How you doing? It is a pleasure to be here. You know why? Because I don't have to be the host. <laughs> I know, and you're now I'm the host, and the tables have turned. Oh, my gosh. Pressure's I'm going to be making all these Pressure's food off. puns and metaphors just like you do on every fucking episode and it's gonna be so exciting the student has become the master (laughs) (laughs) um and we also have podcast producer and very good friend connor o'donnell how you doing connor i'm great you know we we love talking about all these people and you know i had the julia styles kind of almost movie star b-side on a couple weeks ago uh which is like its own type of fascination because she's someone i i didn't think about a lot but then my sister requested i do her and in in looking into her career it's very interesting and that's its own type of fascination this time around i think we're going to kind of fan out because i think all three of us really like this guy and this guy is colin farrell ireland's own colin farrell master of accents himself colin sure let's say he's a master of accents (laughs) as daredevil showed us he's a master of accents but i think wait yeah Daredevil, he's supposed to be irish though right yeah, but yeah, they it, don't shy. They don't really on? shy away from it, in it. Does he not put it on a little bit? Like that's a total. That well, we can get into that. But yeah. So yeah. you know, usually when we start these um, podcasts, we talk about what's the period of time we're going to cover. And I do think when me and Brian were talking about this, and I even think on one of the podcasts uh, for the Film Stage Show, Brian, you mentioned you wanted to do Colin Farrell. We mm-hmm. were saying um, when we were like slacking about it, the top, the the first slot of his career basically from like 99 to 04 where he was almost like it was an Icarus thing it was like before long Colin Farrell was this guy in Hollywood young handsome talented actor and it made sense that he would be our next big movie star and it kind of never fully hit though he did have some success and then it all kind of went sideways when he made Alexander followed shortly after by Miami Vice, which are kind of two bigger budget flops, which have, I think, aged in different ways. But before that, you have a bunch of movies that really feel like B-sides, especially when you think about Colin Farrell now, who in a lot of regards, I think is like, you could call him kind of a a leading man, but also a very accomplished character actor, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he's going to be in Dumbo coming out, you know, in the next few weeks. Um, So that's an example of kind of, you know, he's in these bigger movies, but not necessarily the ultimate lead. Um I guess what he came out. I mean, we all were probably around the same age when he became big. What was your first Colin Farrell? I think mine might have been American Outlaws, which is his third movie in '01, <laughs> and is uh, is genuinely uh, not great. But uh, how about you guys? So for me, at least, I'm assuming it's American Outlaws. I know that I saw The War Zone way too early, but I think I still saw American Outlaws first. I have a distinct memory of being, I think, depends on when it came out. I was either just about to leave middle school or just in high school. And um, it apparently came out in August. So I was just in high school. And it uh, (laughs) it was like a group date that we all went on. And 
we were sitting there watching this not very good movie, but I do remember sitting there and, you know, when you're that young, you have this thing where you're like still discovering things about yourself. And so I saw Colin Farrell and I had that weird mix of like, I'm either attracted to him or I'm viciously jealous of how good looking he is. And the answer is probably some combination of both. It's a right? little bit of like, both on all yeah, of this. Yeah. yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. There's that brilliant episode of New Girl where Nick like realizes that he doesn't know if a man is attractive or not. And someone explains to him, like, if you imagine waking up with his face and you're happy about that, then he's attractive. And so that is 100%. That's how this works. I think we all have had that moment with Colin Farrell. Of course. Of course. I, I think I had like that three moment. Three different times. Right. I think I had it first in Minority Report, which I loved when it came out. It came out in 2002. Probably not really a B-side because that was almost his coming out party. He literally mm. takes scenes away from Tom Cruise like Tom Cruise is a baby. He literally like... Tom Cruise and is doing good work, and Colin Farrell's like, sorry, it, dude, let me just take this scene away from you because I'm amazing. And I remember reading reviews that would say that. So, Yeah, no, no, no. And it's, I mean, it's, I think, you know, I think there's a level of, because I actually think that Minority Report might have been, my, like, I definitely saw American Outlaws, but I think Minority Report might have been my first experience with Colin Farrell where I was like, ooh, who, like, I think I like this guy, right? Like, and that movie positions him knowingly or not, I think kind of knowingly in this like wonderful bit of meta casting, right? Because he is in Hollywood, the guy who is going to take Tom Cruise's job supposedly. And in the movie, he plays the dude who's going to take Tom Cruise's job. But it's not the future if you stop. Isn't that a fundamental paradox? Yes, it is. You're talking about predetermination, which happens all the time. Why'd you catch that? Because it was going to fall. You're certain? Yeah, but it didn't fall. You caught it. The fact that you prevented it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. You ever get any false positives? Someone intends to kill his boss or his wife, but they never go through with it. How do the precogs tell the difference? Precogs don't see what you intend to do. Only what you will do. And then now before we get past Minority Report, though, and obviously Minority Report is, like we said, not really a B-side, I want to let you, Brian, kind of go for a minute on The War Zone from 99 and Tigerland from 2000, because I know that you have an affinity for both. And those are Colin Farrell's first two movies. Yeah, so The War Zone, it's funny because he's, he's in it. Like, you see him, but he does not have a very big part. He basically, like, shows up in a bar and then walks on the beach with the sister in that movie. And um, yeah, I, like, have you guys seen or are you aware of what The War Zone is about? I, I have not. Fantastic. Okay, so The War Zone is based off a book by Alexander Stewart. It's directed by Tim Roth, which is what kind of drew me to it, first of all. And it's about uh, Ray Winstone as a father and Tilda Swinton as a mother. And... Ray Winston begins an affair with his daughter and the movie is told through the point of view of his son who is trying to figure out exactly what to do with this information. And Colin Farrell's character, Nick, is just like a guy she meets in the bar and leads on for a bit and like kind of serves to further annoy and confuse her younger brother who's trying to like, I guess, kind of decide like how much culpability his sister has in what's going on with their like family um 
So it's a it's a very messed up movie. Colin Farrell has a look of like eager confusion when this girl comes on to him. I think is the best way to put it. Um, he's he's not a giant part of the movie, but he 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 shows up and he does his work, and it's very good. Now Tigerland, however, he is, is, he is the movie. Yeah, he's um he's the like Jay Gatsby to um Matt Davis's uh Nick Carraway, I guess. Matt Davis of of legally blonde fame. Sorry, not to sidetrack you. I just Oh no, no, I no, mean, let's you, context, no, no, no. Context. Yeah, Brian loves Matt Davis, so we'll talk about below all day, right, Brian? <laughs> I was about to say we could talk about below for forty minutes, but this is not the almost a movie star Matthew Davis episode. Right. This is um, guys, this is a twist. That was what this is always gonna be. It's now become a Matt Davis almost backdoor movie pilot. Hijacked it. <laughs> So yeah, Matthew Davis is uh, Private Jim Paxton, and Colin Farrell has like a perfect name in this movie. It's Private Roland Boz, and of course, because they're all a bunch of men training for Vietnam, everyone just calls him Boz. And so Matthew Davis is this guy who's like eager to serve his country and really wants to go to Vietnam, and Colin Farrell plays kind of like a ne'er-do-well, like, you know, I've tumbled out of everything else in my life, this is what I've got to do now thing, and he... um he like bucks the trends. He really battles with authority. And as the movie progresses, he, it turns out is like the smartest person in the room and starts to help all of these other men who have been like drafted get deferments. He becomes like a black market of information to help these people get out of Vietnam. I always remember, I think of it as like an indie catch 22 with a Susan of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? Yeah, like it's that's a, kind I, of like, so what it I is. full disclosure, I watched this last night for the first time. Like I had oh. like, I had like caught bits of pieces of it, but I watched it last night for the first time in preparation. And the thing that immediately jumped to me is I was like, Oh, this is cool. Hand Luke. Like it's like a, it's like it's it's like he's he's the Paul Newman character, and it's just in basic training instead of. It's also like Shawshank Redemption. A little right, like, yeah, yeah, very similar. It's it's all these movies where it's like here's the the uncharacteristic. It's also like it's also like Medea goes to jail. <laughs> we could just it's almost like Ernest <laughs> goes to jail too. It's got yeah, a little exactly. bit of Paddington too in it. Um, yeah, it's got well. A, there is that weird Hugh Grant Hunter scene. Killer. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's um he like he is magnetic in this movie. Like it, it would be easy for a character like this to come off as just like an insufferable piece of shit, but he cuts his like devil may care attitude really well with a lot of empathy. And so that makes his uh his like final actions in the movie like ring really true. And I think that telling it through Matthew Davis's perspective helps with that a lot as well. Like I I saw this after I was already on the Colin Farrell train. Like I did not see this movie contemporaneous with its release. Like, I think I didn't see it until I was in college, which means the the earliest I could have seen it was probably like 2005, 2006. But like I I remember seeing this movie and then saying to myself like why is Colin Farrell doing all these like junky action movies when he is such a charismatic like good performer in this he got a little bit of credit for this movie right it was an indie movie it didn't make a lot of money right if you look at box office mojo it made literally a quarter of a million dollars but it was regarded critically and it was kind of like who is this guy colin farrell mm-hmm. you know 
a role that's kind of designed to be a scene stealing type of scenario. But after this, right after he becomes after Minority Report, when he's making the movies you're talking about, Brian, that's the period of time where it's like Colin Farrell's doing drugs, Colin Farrell's drinking too much, Colin Farrell's going to a red carpet with Britney Spears. If you remember that, yeah, I do like, remember all that. that. <laughs> he really became that personification of Hollywood excess in his 20s slash 30s. And one thing I love is he was on, there was a show Dinner for Five, which all the episodes used to be on YouTube, but I think they've since taken them off. It was the show John Favreau had where he would have people on and they would just have a dinner and talk. And it was always like industry people. Oh, yeah. And one of the ones, Colin Farrell was talking about Joel Schumacher because they had made Phone Booth and they had made Tigerland. And I think... He, um, and Veronica uh, Guerin. Yeah, Colin Farrell has like a cameo of Veronica Guerin, which yeah. also was directed by Schumacher. And in, if you can find this, and maybe I'll try to find it and clip it in here, uh, Colin Farrell basically talks about how Joel Schumacher is really talented, but every once in a while he doesn't give a shit and he makes a movie like Bad Company. And then he literally ref- he says Bad Company in <laughs> Dinner for Five. And in that same Dinner for Five, he talks about how he's reading for Oliver Stone for an Alexander movie, and he doesn't think he's going to get the part. The stories he wants to tell, I think, Joe, the stories he wants to tell and stories he'll do for money, you know, Bad Company being money he'll do for money, and the stories he wants to tell being something he gets excited about, like Phone Booth or Tigerland. He's doing a film in Dublin now called the Veronica Guerin story about an Irish reporter who exposed the gangland criminals in Dublin. He's a married woman, two kids, and she was shot dead at a red light. Yeah, I uh, heard about that. Great fucking story, man. And Joel, I went, I did a day on it when I went home the last time, and I was asking the crew who I'd all worked with, I'd started off with on television, you know, seven years ago, um, I was saying to them all, how are you finding Joel? And they were like, you worked with him, haven't you, man? And I was like, yeah, two films. And they were going, you know what, we know he's a puff. Like, we know he's a bit fucking fruity, you know? But he fucking raps every day at four o'clock, we love him, you know? <laughs> and so Joel's like, God, check the gate, we'll fucking, whatever we have is good, you know? And, uh, and that's not at the expense of getting the good shit, but but he, he instills such a comfort on the set. Fucking a year and a half, a week ago, and I shit my fucking eye, and nearly had to wear brown trousers into the fucking thing, man, because I was so nervous that I was gonna scat all over the fucking audition room, and uh, and it was cool because I had to deal with it because I'm like, good Colin, you're fucking, as I said, Hollywood's hottest little what the fuck ever. Go in, learn your fucking lines, and deal with it. You know, it was fucking sweet, was it man. I was great. I was so alive. What was it for? What was it for? It was for a thing called Alexander the Great that Oliver Stone was doing, which mm. I probably won't get, but it was cool. Oliver Stone, yeah, yeah, man. He was fucking, you know, he was nuts. I was disappointed because he didn't have two Malaysian hookers and an eight ball with him. You know, I said it though. I said, where the fucking, where's the coke? Where's the fucking brazzers? The guy was just like super honest and kind of a train wreck during this like early aughts period, and I think. Looking back, I almost... I was about to say, I I remember that period, and I do remember kind of like loving that about him. And it's it's one of those things, you know, not not to bring us to dark territory, but like the more that like people get called out in the Me Too movement, there's a part of me that's like kind of... Like, I guess good on Colin Farrell, because like even with all of his problems, apparently he didn't do anything that was bad enough for people to like... to come at him for. Like, maybe he just was like wasted all the time but was otherwise slightly okay like i don't know if this is one of those things where there's industry rumblings yeah like maybe he was just a drunk gentleman or even like a drunk cad but not like (laughs) in an ill right like a little bit of a lothario but not in any kind of way that's like sketchy or you know he was like on the level 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's, and I think the reason that this early aughts period is like ripe for a B side conversation is because you look at them in something like Tigerland, right? And especially when you look at it, like you were saying, Brian, against this period of like shitty action movies and just like like mid level like bad blockbusters, um, he then you know. He, he we it takes him all the way up through the fiasco that is Alexander and then he does the new world which is like it feels like a performance of like oh yeah like this is the dude you should have been for the last like four years or whatever right and um it almost feels I I had wrote in some notes while I was uh watching phone booth at one point I was kind of like did Colin Farrell like miss the boat or did he dodge a bullet Right. Like, did he either arrive too early or too late and just didn't it didn't afford him the chance to become the movie star that people wanted him to be for like four years? Or did he dodge a bullet and like all of that was just the necessary step to get him to, you know, I think the Colin Farrell that at least the three of us talking right now all know and love. Right. Like and um, and I think that's what's the like the most fascinating thing about this period is because in watching some of these movies or rewatching them, I was coming across time and time again, like, Oh, this part almost went to so-and-so and and it almost went to so-and-so. And in a few instances, you're almost like, Oh, that person probably would have been better. But like it, you know, it weirdly is like a necessary debacle for people to give up on him as a movie star. So he can like just do better things and like not worry about it. You know, was he, was was he one of those people who like even though he he kept I don't want to say failing but even though his movies like underperformed and people had questions about him was he still like a weird international draw in the same way that like um oh man I can't remember his name the guy from across the universe Jim, how Jim he like yeah yeah Jim Sturgis was like weirdly necessary to get Cloud Atlas made because he's apparently huge overseas. I don't know. I mean, if you look at the receipts, like, so basically, let's just, let's name the movies we're kind of referencing. So Minority Report comes out summer 2002, performs relatively well. I think everybody expected it to perform a little bit better because it was a Spielberg cruise, but it did do okay Mm -hmm. and is critically beloved. And then you have January 2003, a little movie called The Recruit, directed by Roger Donaldson. Hooah. I, only two weeks later, he's in Daredevil playing Bullseye, which is kind of an infamous movie and an infamous uh, performance. And then two months after that, he's in Phone Booth, the Schumacher movie reference. And then only two, and then only uh, four months after that, all 03, he's in SWAT. Which does weirdly well, right? Makes a hundred and seventeen million dollars domestic, and another ninety worldwide uh, international. So over two hundred million worldwide. Even though it cost eighty million dollars, which I just—I mean, I don't know, Connor. You said you were watching it right before we started. Yeah, recording. that was. I've seen the movie before, but that was the only one of these that I wasn't able to get you know finish up with it must have been it must have been that all the stunts are practical in that movie that it yeah so there's like, i mean there's definitely some shit in it that um and i was thinking about this and this is a compliment to the movie and but like that movie also looks okay you know what i mean like it like no no like <laughs> especially you know and dan you and i have talked about this ad nauseum but like how a lot of studio blockbusters now just like they look like nothing right 
And they, you know, it obviously it's not the best looking movie in the world, but there is an element of like, oh, that like there were a few shots that I was like, oh, they like lit this and they like took the time to decide to shoot it at magic hour. And like, you know what I mean? Like it has an aesthetic to it that kind of works. And so I think and even the action that's in it to a certain degree feels largely practical and and shot in a way that I think uh, when you when you mentioned how, you know, how expensive it must have been, it kind of it kind of makes sense. I mean, I'd wonder you know, at this point in time, you know, what Sam Jackson's quote was maybe, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Must I mean, have been. He's definitely like the lead, you know, actor in terms of kind of quote and uh, recognition in that movie. You do have young, younger Jeremy Renner as kind of the, right. his name's Gamble in that movie. Yeah. He's Everyone Colin in Farrell's this movie like has a great partner. name. Yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, obviously SWAT based on the show. So Colin Farrell plays Jim Street. One thing I'll just say I love about SWAT and the recruit is that they have the sexy movie star aside scenes that you don't get a lot of anymore in movies, which is to say in both of those movies, there is scenes where Colin Farrell is like beating the shit out of a boxing bag, a punching bag. Yeah. And it's like, Oh really yeah. Like sexy, like shot, like, Oh yeah. Colin Farrell. We yeah. like him. Right. And I it's so, it. it's so striking that like at the, I, I was watching the recruit or rewatching the recruit with my girlfriend and she immediately was like, I got to go to the gym. Like it was just like one of those, like we immediately were like, like we just looked at Colin Farrell shirtless punching a punching bag and we like, we're both just like, Oh, we're inadequate humans. Like, like God damn it. Yeah. Um, I think you still see stuff like that occasionally, but I feel like to your point, Dan, it's never, it's like almost always played for laughs. You know what I mean? Like you have like, I don't know why this is popping in my head, but you have like, you know, Mark Wahlberg's whole existence in date night is like that. It's just like, look at how sexy this person is. Um, That's true. Yeah, I love. That. I was going to say Captain camera. America keeping the uh, the helicopter from flying away. Yeah, right. There's yes. Yeah, there's but like at least, a, in, but that's like contingent to the plot of the movie, right? I mean, right. It's, it's not an it, like you said. It's not an aside. Like yeah. that's like okay. Well, in this point, we can clearly have his muscles bulging. But like, there's not a point where he like stands up. And just like is like you know I gotta go for a run, and then you just <laughs> right. get an insert shot of him running. Shirtless. Brian, Brian, even in um even in Crimson Tide, which you guys just talked about on your classic episode, there's like a moment or two where like sexy Denzel does that. He's like boxing and he's young and slim, and you don't need that in the movie, but they did it because it was like that's our boy Denzel. Like, right, you're, you're like you're paying the money in... for the abs. You know, oh, yeah, that's like I mean part of it. When we talked about Devil in a Blue Dress. We talked about that a lot. We're yeah. like, this is this is a movie that needs you to know Denzel Washington is sexy. And I, I mean, I think there's a level of with these movies with Farrell, um, that I mean that yeah, that feels like a a decent level of what a lot of American Outlaws is. And uh, but there are it is I mean like Phone Booth isn't like that you know like Phone Booth he's he's kind of smarmy and it's like. It, he's he's almost already trying to play against type in a in a weird way, like because the you know what precedes phone booth is a little bit more like marquee idol type stuff. Um, mm-hmm. where, yeah, I mean his first his first kind of bigger released starring role after American Outlaws before Minority Report is Hearts War actually, which we haven't talked about directed by Gregory Hoblet, which is kind of a huge flop. Bruce Willis is the first built star, but Colin Farrell is heart. He is the lead of the movie. And that's kind of like a Stalag 17 rip off, not rip off, yeah. but like yeah. 
homage with a couple other courtroom drama elements to it and that movie's kind of a slog i i like gregory hoblet as a director he's the guy who directed uh primal fear and that ryan gosling anthony hopkins movie fracture and the movie oh, Fre- yeah. frequency yeah he's so, a good he's a good he's like a good director, workman yeah. director but hearts war is kind of a nadir it's it's kind of what do you what do you think about uh hearts war uh brian and connor do you, do you have you both seen it what do you think about that I have I have seen it. I remember the thing that I remember most about Hearts War is oddly it's it's like trailer and marketing campaign and just like how little I had any idea what it was about. <laughs> and I I remember I was at the beach and I'm a I'm a pale Irishman um and it was around the time that Hearts War came out. It was like a new release in this video store that I would walk to. And I remember standing there, and it's like a local video store, so like the guy behind the counter has like seen all the movies, and he's a he's a big dork, and he has no problem telling you his opinion. And I'm just like, Hearts War, and he's like, No, and I was like, What? And he's like, Don't don't do it, man. <laughs> I was like, Why do you carry it? And he's like, Because you know it's Bruce Willis, it's Colin Farrell, people are gonna, but you've come in here, I know you, like just go get something else. And I was like, Oh, okay, <laughs> that's sure. so funny. I mean, he was right. He was. He was right. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's like a. It's like a nothing movie. I. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's like. Well, me and Brian were talking before we started recording. With a lot of these movies, when you're looking, you know, in this period, exactly right, like oh one to oh four, like we're talking about. One thing is, no matter their quality, in the time we live in now, where you know Brian just finished recording a podcast about Captain Marvel. In a couple of months, you're going to record another podcast about Avengers Endgame. And then we're never talking about another Marvel but, movie ever again. But the point is, you know, these movies are, are are nice. Even if they're not good, like you're like, oh, Hearts War. Remember when people would, you know, give somebody $70 million to make Hearts War? You know what I mean? Like where it's like yeah. Bruce Willis starring World War II morality play. You know what I mean? Like, Well, it's... It's like what you were saying about SWAT. Like I I remember visual aspects of SWAT and I haven't seen or before like we talked about doing this. So I saw it like a month ago because we've had to push this back. But like before that I hadn't seen it in a long time and I do remember thinking like I know so many parts of SWAT just from memory. Right. Even though it wasn't like my favorite movie, I just happened to see it a couple times. But like I saw Captain Marvel and had a legitimately difficult time talking about it on the podcast because it's just, it is like all that post-production animatic second unit stuff. Like there wasn't a lot that like really stood out in my brain about it, but like, you know, we just, like, ugh. it's annoying that like these movies that we think of as, oh, that was just like a movie that they knocked out with Colin Farrell. It didn't go anywhere. Like they still have like weird moments of like heart and interest and visual acuity that you just don't find in Captain Marvel. Like I, for some reason the other day, someone that I was talking to made a SWAT reference. <laughs> um, they, they said, um, what was it? A hundred million dollars. <laughs> oh my God. Of course. The famous line from the trailer. <laughs> And I was like, holy shit, SWAT. And he was like, yeah, man, that movie rocks. And I was just like, does anyone 
outside of like memeing it up on Twitter, like does anyone just drop like a Marvel thing in in conversation like that? Like, right, if like I a were line, to say, like a line. Yeah, I like, can yeah. tell you the only one, the only one that I can think of immediately that I would use in conversation occasionally is a variation on the Mark Ruffalo. I'm always angry. Like if somebody guess, will yeah. say something to me, I'll be like, "That's my secret cap. I'm always tired." Or like, you know, <laughs> yeah, Avengers. Yeah. So I mean, that would be like the only. But again, that even that's like a stretch. Like, or like in Age of Ultron when it ends, right? And the movie's over, and, and you sigh with relief, yeah. and you go, "Thank <laughs> God that's over." Just a world weary <laughs> sigh, and it's like, "Ah, Age of Ultron. I gotcha." Yeah, and I uh, here's another Age thing. Here's another I loved. Thing. I, quick aside. Sorry. <laughs> I love in the Captain Marvel uh, podcast when all four of you just agree that Age of Ultron was just this like thing that should never be spoken about. <laughs> a friend of mine listened to that podcast today. I was like, it was kind of depressing to hear you just like break down Danielle like that <laughs> because she started off so positive, and then towards the end, I guess we just wore her down enough. Aww. And um, I was like, yeah, but you know, at the end, we talked about how awesome Captain America is, so it's fine. <laughs> What I was going to say is that there's there's a level, you know, if we're comparing like the the now to the then, all these movies, rewatching them, they're basically, you know, with the exception of Alexander, all of like these kind of touchstone movies, and maybe I mean, Minority Report's a little long, but the ones that we kind of we're kind of generally talking about, all under two hours. Interesting. You know what I mean? Like they're all like SWAT, just barely, but like they're mostly all under two hours, and it's like. I'll say that like oh. rewatching like American Outlaws, like I was just like, oh yeah, this movie's like ninety five minutes, and Phone Booth is like s- not seventy, it's like eighty. No, it's like minutes eighty something minutes. Can I tell you something about Phone Booth? I've, despite its short runtime, I've never actually watched it in one sitting. How is that possible? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just well no because it's because I saw the movie on TV for the first time. And so because of that, like I, and even rewatching it for this, I like had paused it for a while and had to go like, which is just weird to think about. Cause it's so that short. Is insane. The it's weirdest a- part, the weirdest part about phone booth, and maybe you agree is the prologue where that narrator's like, this is the last phone booth in New York. Do and it's like scheduled for well, demolition. That, why, why is it in there? Is no. There so here's the, that? yeah. So here's the thing. I don't know. And I don't know if this is a direct reason, but I do know that um, the script was originally talked about and being written back when, like, Alfred Hitchcock was still making movies. And Alfred Hitchcock was working with the writer to, um, to basically, like, try and do a movie in a phone booth, right? And it was, and right. like, like, or at least an idea, right? They, like, had mused on it. And the opening narration basically Larry Cohen couldn't figure out a reason to keep the dude in the phone booth. And then once the sniper idea came into his head many years later, he like wrote the script super quick. Right. Um, but the opening narration feels to me almost like an old school, like, you know, 1960s Hitchcock or Frankenheimer even kind of device that you would just use and nobody would care. You know what I mean? Like, it, it feels almost old like, school. It it feels almost like the way that Alfred Hitchcock introduced um, that that one trailer for Psycho, where he like walked through the motel. Yeah. 
So it almost feels like they were like, okay, what if what if the trailer, but that's the opening of the movie, right? Like it, it feels like, an, like it, sure. it feels like an old school quick. Like I don't know if uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Spellbound, but like Spellbound opens with a like, hey, here's what psychoanalysis is, basically. And, uh, and Casablanca it, actually has that right, too. Very, it's, well, it mean, feels like I mean, an old school movie. And wait, and wait, yeah, but that's and amazing and, and great. And so that's different. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to I'm going to say something controversial. Phone booth doesn't get up to Casablanca levels of greatness. Scorching hot, scorching hot. I will say Brian Rowan says phone booth is no Casablanca. We all know that uh, the character of Pamela McFadden is is totally right up there with Elsa. You know, (laughs) can we talk about real quick um, rewatching it? I was just so struck by like. I think this movie has aged pretty well just in terms of its quality. I think it's a tight movie. I think it's just partially because of the run runtime. It's kind of effortlessly entertaining, uh, which, you know, t- to its credit, it hasn't aged well in terms of like, obviously all the references that it makes. Uh, Cause in this movie, Mel Gibson is still a thing. And uh, Katie Holmes references rehearsing a scene from Jerry Maguire and being the <laughs> and being the Renee Zellweger part, and she's like excited about it. She is the other woman in the scenario, basically. That he is going like so. He goes to the phone booth to set up, like you know, stuff with women to to go you know meet him at this hotel or whatever. And the whole right. in in the moment of the movie, he's going to do that with Katie Holmes, and she turns him down because she's like, I I can't. I gotta rehearse the scene with my partner. We're doing Jerry Maguire, and you're just like, Oh, girl, like run away, run like away. you don't know. It's cra- It's nuts. Um, yeah, because in that movie, he's like a fast talking agent, and he he yeah he goes to the phone booth so that he doesn't. Because this is also back when like you would get a cell phone bill that would say every single call that you made. Yeah. Because you didn't have an unlimited plan that you just paid online. Right, right. And um, so yeah, he goes in the phone booth, takes his wedding ring off, calls his girl. And it's weird because he's having this affair, but I think they make it pretty clear that like they've never gone to bed together. Yeah, yeah. That's like his whole out you, with You with know that's, the, that's, that's a studio note. That's like yeah. a big... In order to make him slightly more likable. If you hang on, I will kill you. What are you going to do about it up in your fucking high window with your goddamn binoculars? I never said I had binoculars. I have a highly magnified telescopic image of you. Now, what kind of device has a telescopic sight mounted on it? What, you mean like a rifle? A 30 caliber bolt action 700 with a carbon one modification and a state-of-the-art handhold tactical scope. And it's staring straight at you. Yeah, how's my fucking hair? <laughs> at this range, the exit wound ought to be about the size of a small tangerine. A thousand percent. Now, let me ask a question. What do we think of the Daredevil performance, right? He plays Bullseye. I mean, I I, I kind of think I, I respect the audacity. Because most of the parts I've done you know, have been, you know, young fellas that are happy particularly and are going through some shit and getting a hard time. This fellow's just a fucking looper, you know? Yeah, I know, yeah. First line. Mm. Second line. Mm. Third line. Mm. <laughs> and so I went into looping. You know, the, you know the way you have to do looping afterwards? You have to do post-sync. I went in, and usually you go in and you have all these, you have to match your own mouth move on this big screen when you're trying to loop the film because the sound was bad, and you have to match it with dialogue, and it's a nightmare. And I went in this time, and all I had to do was go, mm. Mm. For, for four hours. I basically enjoyed the movie Venom that came out last year, and a movie I think a lot of people referenced 
when they were saying why they didn't like or they did like Venom was they kind of referenced Daredevil, right? I think Griffin Newman on the Blank Check podcast actually said that it feels like Venom exists only in a world where the only other superhero movie is Daredevil, which I thought was kind of a, a funny a take. <laughs> and I, he didn't, I don't think, liked Venom. I, I, I honestly enjoyed it quite a bit. But it felt almost in that same way of Venom, where like the Tom Hardy performance is so bonkers, you respect it. I kind of feel that with Colin Farrell's performance in, in Daredevil. It's so crazy that I, I rewatch it with a bit of admiration. I think he's kind of trying to, um, cause you, right. You got to think about the frame of reference, right? Like, like Hardy, Hardy is doing venom in a world where we're not necessarily getting those kind of performances out of the leads in other superhero movies. Right. Um, so it, it, I feel like that's a thing that almost makes it feel more impressive. At least, just you, I kind, I'm, I'm with you in that. I appreciate it that it exists because it's insane. Um, Farrell, I think, is, you know, doing some version of that. I feel like he's kind of trying to like Nicholson the movie a little bit, um, in terms of just like showing up in a way that like can't be ignored, and uh, and just kind of overshadows everything else in the movie, which I think he does successfully. I think the reason it doesn't entirely pay off, at least in a way that we now think of like, ah, but he was good is that like, there's so much other also crazy shit in that movie that drowns him out as well. Like just in terms of just stylistic choices and music choices and all sorts of shit that I think he kind of, he, he weirdly feels right at home in how, like bananas and terrible that movie is um so it weirdly i I don't think that performance feels that audacious to me i think however that he's the only one who's having any fun yes that's a thousand percent true michael clark duncan's kind of having a little bit of fun but you're basically right yeah him and Joe, yeah, him and I Joey mean, like, Pants. Joey Pants is having a lot of fun. Just kinda, I think Joey Pants always has. Fun. He's always having. Joey Pants yeah. is always having fun. Yeah, that's true. So, but like you know, Michael Clark Duncan gets to like stand in front of a window and look huge. And like I think that you know he's enjoying playing that menacing energy. But like I feel like Colin Farrell was just jazzed to go to work on that movie because he was like, you know. These people, they're going to let me do whatever I want. And uh, this it's going to be great. So he's like a twitchy weirdo. He loves to, like, touch the scar on his head, yeah. which is a choice that he has made. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's weird to think about it now because when uh, Heath Ledger, like, did his whole, like, smacking his lips because of the scars for the Joker makeup, everyone was like, oh, such a bold choice, like, such an interesting choice. But we see Colin Farrell do it in that movie, and we're like, stop touching your freaking bullseye, dude. Yeah, we but... get it. It's your name. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's... And, um, he. D- I, but yeah, in general, I think I, I like him in that movie. I think that he is giving more to that movie than than anyone else, and he's one of the few people who really, like, gets out of it okay. Because, like, Jennifer Garner... And goddamn Ben Affleck are yeah. just so boring in that movie. I will, I will, so... I will say, into Ben Affleck's defense, and this is a bit of a backhanded compliment. I love the line at the, towards the beginning of the movie where the dude is on the subway tracks and he's like, "That light at the end of the tunnel." No, you don't. That's I do. It's so ridiculous. 
That, don't what does he say that. that's not that's heaven the, that's that's the a train the c train or the a train or whatever i mean that's a I... line and a half hey that light at the end of the tunnel guess what that's not heaven i'm killing you i'm killing you that's the c train I'm now i'll say this in 04 right before alexander which is kind of you know, an inflection point in a lot of ways. He makes, I think, two pretty good independent movies, right? Um, it's the Irish movie Intermission, which is almost like, to be to be derivative about it, would be to say it's like an Irish Pulp Fiction-y movie, right? It's like a crime. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, it's but a, that movie is fantastic. Yeah, it's a good movie, um, a very well-done movie. A lot of great people in that movie, one of them obviously being Colin Farrell, who I believe is a criminal, right, Brian? In that movie, he's kind of one of the... Yeah, he's... <laughs> I think... If I'm recalling correctly, he he begins the movie with like a long speech about like true love and like charming the shit out of this girl behind a shop counter, and then he punches her in the face and robs her. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think and that then, was just him on a Tuesday. Probably. And then, uh, <laughs> the other you really mean that they filmed him and put him in this movie without telling right. him. And then the other one is a home at the end of the world, which I will say uh, doesn't have a big following, but. Uh, I saw it. I don't know. I think I just like I liked Colin Farrell, and I found it on at Blockbuster. And I loved this movie when I was that age, in like '05, whenever you know I I watched it on DVD. And I, I would urge people if you haven't seen it, you haven't heard about it, look it up. And if you think it looks interesting, give it a watch. I mean, Colin Farrell is giving a really kind of interesting performance in that movie. It's basically a family drama. It's like very mid two thousands independent movie so some people might bristle at some of the plot machinations uh, machinations in it but mm-hmm. i remember loving colin farrell in it so i definitely think it's worth a visit if you uh, don't know about it or anything but i think it does speak to this thing we're talking about where he gets this movie star shot he has a bit of success right swat does well phone booth does well daredevil does well though people don't like it the recruit does okay though people i generally think don't really like it i actually really I'll be honest, I kind of really like Daredevil, or uh, The Recruit, rather. Um, and I think it's definitely a movie whenever it's on or whenever I revisit it, even if I'm only watching a couple scenes. I'm always kind of like, I don't know, it's nice. It just it feels like it's a It's an Sunday American afternoon. Outlaws reunion. It's, it's him I mean, and it's got Bridget Gabriel, Gabriel Mock. Yeah, and Bridget Moynihan, why wasn't she just a big star? I thought she. I always thought she was so good. I think she's underrated. That movie feels kind of anemic to me. Um, I think it starts really, really strong. Um, all, all of the recruit stuff is, is like pretty compelling, I think. Um, but I think once it gets into like the actual espionage plot and basically yeah. it feels like, it feels like Donald cause it's Donaldson, right? So it feels like Donaldson reverting to some kind of like a no way out scenario kind of, um, cause it's a lot of like internal CIA espionage type stuff, um, that it, I think when at you know things unfold, and I mean, can I spoil? I'm gonna spoil. Does it matter? Do I, it. I just, so when Pacino is like unmasked, it's just this kind of like, you know, there's a level of casting Pacino, obviously, that you're like, yes, of course. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, and it 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 is executed in a way that isn't even wholly satisfying either. So I think that like that. I'm well, with that movie, I'm with like fifty percent of that movie. I think the the yeah. setup is super entertaining, and I think that the, movie the makes the, the fatal flaw that happens in a lot of these studio pictures 
that I really don't like as a as a screenwriting type of a thing where casting Gabriel a, Mox a, a, a character <laughs> where no Gabriel Mox in the perfect role he's playing he like is Gabriel Mox who like, gets shot yeah, are they real like, real quick not to derail you are they like or were they like buddies because they're in a couple of movies together, they're right? in where well, they were in American Outlaws as because Gabriel Mox is Frank James right. And then I thought, I thought Frank James was Scott Kahn. Are you sure? No, no, no. no Scott, Scott Kahn is James, James Younger. Younger oh. Whatever his name is. Cole Younger or whatever. Oh, it's uh, Cole Younger. You're right. Yeah. The, I'm a real, uh, I'm a real Scott Kahn head. So no, um, but <laughs> no, but it's just funny. Cause the, and then you're a con man. We get it. <laughs> Farrell's not in it, nice. but mocked shows up in the sequel to SWAT. Like the straight to, he's in SWAT. Oh, Firefight. oh, bro. oh yeah. Thank you. I, which I've seen. <laughs> I've seen Wait a second. Wait a second. There was a straight to video SWAT sequel and no one told me about Look, it. Look, oh, why don't we'll pause, SWAT you go check it out. Did. We'll come back. Yeah. And we're back. We got Robert Patrick and Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah. The fatal the the fatal flaw that the recruit makes in the revealed Al Pacino kind of villain reveal thing is that it requires the Al Pacino character who we have established is very smart to do something very stupid yeah. in order to reveal his his true self, right? Which I hate. Like, I hate in movies when they betray the character to get to a plot reveal, right? That happen- yeah. That also happens in that movie, The Interpreter, the Sidney Pollack movie with Sean Penn and Nicole Kidman, which I think is actually a really solid thriller. And I actually, I won't give it away. I'll just say the ending, it's a similar thing where they, they do a reveal where like Sean Penn finds something out and he has to like uh, prevent this other thing from happening. And the way they get there forces the character to, well, just, I mean, I'll spoil it. It's Nicole, the forces the Nicole Kidman character to do something so stupid that the movie has spent, you know, an hour and 40 minutes telling us she would never do. And you're just kind of like, well, then you've kind of betrayed me, the viewer, right? Because you've told me one thing. And then at the moment it's convenient, you've been like, ah, never mind. She made a mistake, you know, you know, and it's just, I hate that type of stuff. And Bridget is in the movie you love. I forgot. Battle LA. Oh, yeah. Oh my no. God. She's the veterinarian. <laughs> oh. oh no. She's, oh yeah. She is the veterinarian. Oh do, yeah. Oh, Connor, do you not know that Brian loves Battle Los Angeles? Am I, I don't know why that's, I'm learning this for the first time, but. That's I'm the just, hill he dies on. Wow. I think. Okay, I watched that movie the other day for free on Crackle <laughs> with with the same two ads. You don't have to every defend yourself. Minutes. Yeah, you just yeah, yeah. You watched it. You would have paid for it. It's fine. You, right. You I, I was I just gonna say like, you would have paid for it. I had if they like let you. four bucks. I had four bucks to last me the rest of the week, so I couldn't like. My underrated Bridget Moynihan performance in a movie that I love is Lord of War. Lord of yeah, War. She's great yeah, of course. This. Which I I will I want to talk about hills to die on. I will die on that hill. Till the day I die myself, because that movie I think is basically great, and I know it's really like, you know, on the nose and what have you, and I get that, but I think it's a great Nicolas Cage performance. Ethan Hawke is giving a really good supporting performance. Jared Leto, that might be like one of Jared Leto's better performances. Yeah. It's a it's a testament to how good that movie is that it, Jared Leto dies, and you're kind of sad about it. He's giving the biggest performance, which I'm sure you can... I mean, it's crazy to say that in a movie with Nicolas Cage, but he really is. And I suppose that could be a criticism, but I think it does the movie well, right? Because he's such a spark plug that the rest of the movie can kind of react to him when he's in it. 
And I just, I don't know, like, I'm not overly, I'm not a huge overall fan of Jared Leto. I don't hate him either as an actor. I, th- I think he's given some really good performances as well. But Requiem for a Dream. Right, of course. And also just other, you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah. he, he's been in a weirdly solid amount of, you know what I mean? Like, he's Requiem. Plus his band is great. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. That is a worse take than the Battle of Los Angeles take every day. Well, I'm going to get up and leave, and there's nothing you guys can do about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm only sincere about the Battle of Los Angeles Oh, I know. Thing. 30 I know. minutes to Mars? Is it minutes or 30 seconds? 30 seconds, dude. All right, so let's quickly talk about Alexander. Um, I think that Alexander is, in a lot of ways, pretty great and super interesting, and I have a lot of... I I get very defensive about it because I think in a lot of ways I own the ultimate cut, you know, the most recent Blu-ray that Oliver Stone put out. Can we quickly chronicle the, the like levels of it's because it's crazy. Yeah. So it came out in. So this is this is crazy in itself. The movie comes out Thanksgiving 04, because what does every family want to do on Thanksgiving? They want to go see a biopic about Alexander the Great. A three-hour epic and so about... Famously, there had been two competing Alexander scripts. One was Leo DiCaprio and Baz Luhrmann. The other one was Oliver Stone. And he eventually cast Colin Farrell. And then, you know, movie goes over budget. They film all over the place. You know, um, you know, you can tell when you watch the movie. I mean, the set pieces are unbelievable. Movie comes out, makes $34 million domestic. Um and does make 130 million foreign so like 170 worldwide but i think you know when you look at the production budget and how much they spent it definitely probably loses a little bit of money you know and even now after all the different cuts probably still hasn't broken even i would wager but then yeah that theatrical cut um comes out and i think it runs i'm looking now it runs like the theatrical cut i think ran three hours alone and then it's it's, so, it's like just shy, I think. Yeah, and then he yeah. releases at least I think three separate like director's cuts since. So on IMDb, they've got the runtime, which is just like the theatrical cut. I guess it's 175 minutes. Right. The director's cut is somehow less than that. Yes. No, he directed yeah. one that was like cut down. Oh yeah, here we go. I'm, yeah, you have it here. 175. He he released one not too long after. That was a. That was just like a little bit slimmer. And then he put out the final cut, which is 214. And the ultimate cut, which is like the final cut, he says, which is 207 minutes long. And I mean, there's a lot of problems with these with this movie. But in a Heaven's Gate, Waterworlds, you know, type of a way, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's like a, a totally insane debacle. I, I think I think also there's a level of like <clears throat> from of the journey from the like the theatrical to the ultimate cut. Um, you can I mean there's certainly improved quality. Like uh, those are the only two cuts I've seen. So I like I saw it in theaters and then you know I just recently watched the ultimate cut, and it's I mean it's a better movie for sure. Like no question. Um, n- not so much that I think. It you know it's still not a very good movie, but it's definitely uh, 
it's a fascinating example of like how much just a like a straight up restructure can do to a movie. I think it's um in in a similar way to Kingdom of Heaven. Right. I think that movie's far more successful. Like I think right. I think the theatrical Kingdom of Heaven is not very good, and I think the director's cut is like a masterpiece. Yeah, I feel I yeah, feel the, the same cut way. Is, yeah, the director's oh cut I absolutely adore. Yeah. Um, One day I will sit down and, and just write something about like movies that are made better by being longer and how we've like lost faith in our audience. But it's also weird because like you know maybe maybe two hundred and seven minutes is a lot, <laughs> but it's long. I mean, it's I mean the ultimate cut is still like just super super long. Like it's still tough, but it's a better movie. And it's interesting because you know kind of connecting kingdom of heaven to alexander because they did come out at a similar time it came of Heaven came out the next summer and that was kind of if gladiator brought back the sword and sandal epic troy alexander and kingdom of heaven kind of killed it only like five years after <laughs> right as swiftly as they could um but i think what's interesting is you know it speaks to con farrell's talent as a performer because after Alexander comes out, you would not be crazy in guessing that that was kind of the end for him, right? Because it was such mm. a debacle, you know, in that Heaven's Gate type of a way, you would not be wrong and being like, okay, was that kind of the end for Colin Farrell? And to some degree, that is kind of what happened to Orlando Bloom. I mean, Kingdom of Heaven was such a flop when it came out, and a lot of it got pinned on Orlando Bloom in his lead performance. I think that, that plus Elizabethtown, the same. I was this, about to say, you're forgetting well, Elizabeth. Yeah, there's they're like <laughs> the, one, the, the two same year. Involved, yeah, the same yeah. year within months of each other. And you know, full disclosure, I, in my own weird way, absolutely love Elizabethtown, which I know nobody what, loves. What, but what, what, what are we? How are you telling us this right now? <laughs> I just do. I love it. How have I gotten shit for liking Battle Los Angeles, but you're not getting just stoned to death for liking Elizabeth? Well, I am Town. getting stones thrown thrown at me as as we're speaking. My wife is literally throwing stones at me as it is. It is funny. I did. Pebbles. I did try to watch Elizabeth Town with Kelly, and she, after twenty minutes, was like, "I don't know. I don't think." This I will be, say, but the opening he, ten is like is the good part. <laughs> The opening, well, the opening bit with with but, uh, but Baldwin. But then there's minute eleven, Connor. Then there's well, right, right. The second Baldwin exits the picture yeah. and he like starts making a suicide machine oh, is the point where I'm I like, know. Right. I can't really, I can't really explain myself. But but the I remember watching that movie with a friend of mine who, I don't know if you're going to find this funny or depressing. A friend of mine who eventually would actually commit suicide, and we were sitting there watching Elizabethtown when he was still very much alive, and. He, he turned to me and said, this is how you know he's not serious about killing himself. Because if he really wanted to, he would have just jumped off a building. No one who's seriously going to kill themselves goes to this much trouble. It's so true. I mean, it and, is um, true, yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, especially, you know, with the way that my friend's story ended, I was like, yep, you proved <laughs> us right. <laughs> you know, that's... you didn't create a suicide machine out of an exercycle. That's its own Elizabethtown tragedy right there, Brian. Um if you can't laugh about it, 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 what are you going to do? <laughs> but I guess my point is just like with with the two of them, right, Bloom and Farrell, you know, Bloom just didn't have, I guess, the chops, you would say. You know, and yeah, no. the sad thing is I actually think, and I think I said this on the Kate Blanchett uh, B-Side podcast, is that I do think if Ridley Scott releases what became the director's cut, 
it might have changed Orlando Bloom's career because I do think that performance is actually uh, quite impressive and nuanced and what they're trying to say about religion and faith is all meant to go through Orlando Bloom's character and the fact that the theatrical cut uh, basically aborts that, right? Mm-hmm. Does the does a lot to Orlando Bloom's performance. It literally cuts the meat out of his performance. So I, it is a kind of a shame that it went that way. But regardless, right? Farrell, Alexander's a flop. The New World comes out the next holiday season, and though it is now, I think, in a lot of ways, beloved. Uh, doesn't really make a splash it makes it made a lot of um top of the decade lists when we were in like 2010 yeah no it's a i mean it's a phenomenal movie it's like and he's now which cut though every well i i love that i love all of them deep deep deeply yeah that's my favorite terrence malick movie one of my favorite movies ever made the new world it's a running joke in my in my house and in my personal life that i own technically five different copies of that movie. Yeah. And I do think that might, I mean, that for me, I know a lot of people point to in Bruges. That for me is probably Colin Farrell's best performance, the new world. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And then I think that go, sorry, go there's ahead. a toss up. He he's done a lot. I mean, he's clearly one of the reasons that we feel confident doing this is because he's clearly on an upswing. And um, a lot of that has to do with a lot of really great performances that he's given recently. And, yeah, I think that New World is definitely up there. But if if you had said that like when it first came out, that would mean nothing. But he's he's definitely now got like I would say three or four that could jockey for like the monoc the the monocle the mantle of like Colin Farrell's best performance. Now, Brian, let me ask you: you I think have an adverse opinion about this movie, partly because of a film stage list. What are your feelings on Michael Mann's Miami Vice? Wait, no, I. What do you mean? I have an advert. I wrote the the slug for oh, that. Wait, in our list. What, wait, what's the what's the list that you? What's the? We agree on Miami Vice, then, right? We both love it. Yeah. Wait, number one the best action movie of like the decade and it or is. the two thousands. Oh, no, or wait, whatever. wait, Connor, Connor. Okay, has a so with I it. I have a little I I have come around to this movie because I um didn't technically walk out of it because i was never in it but i remember walking into this movie before going to see another movie like i had time to kill so i was like hey, let me just pop in and i i don't even remember what part in the movie it was at but i straight up just like walked in and i saw like two seconds of colin farrell's performance at the time and i was just like i'm out no i'm out right and it was, to be fair, it was also before I had kind of really come around to him in general. So I was just kind of like, nah, I'm good. And I walked out of it. And it wasn't until, you know, only a couple of years ago that Dan finally convinced me to revisit it. And uh, it has been a movie that when I revisited it, I was like, oh, no, I was wrong. Like, this movie's really good. Then that list came out. And I I don't still don't agree with that. Like, I don't think it's the best action movie. Of what, well, you were saying is there are because the, there aren't actually there aren't actually a lot of action scenes. Yeah, it's it, like right? not really. It's like barely an action movie. It's got it's got what it's got the, uh, the I would say that the cars racing down the highway to stop uh, John Hawk's character is an action scene. I think that the, the, the sh- storming the trailer. Right. Right. Scene. Is a great action. And the, the, the shootout shoot at the bust. end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um. 
you know, J- Jamie Jamie Fox has that moment where he like takes down two different guards trying to stop the guy from rough well, up the girl at the opening sting, and obviously ordering the mojitos. But I also, ordering the mojitos that's its own action scene. Of course, of where, course. Where, oh, where my God. Colin I mean, goes, but you get your tan in Miami. That whole exchange with the bartender <laughs> yeah. at the beginning, which is maybe the greatest thing that's ever been put to digital uh, digital film. I love. Okay, so my favorite part of the film, the part that always makes me laugh no matter what, is when that one guy is like. You know, it could come back on me, baby. And Jamie Foxx says, it's not going to come back on you, baby. And then he says, these guys are vertically integrated. And Jamie Foxx says, what, they walk around with constant erections. And the guy starts to explain vertical integration. And he's just like, I know what it means. He's just having such a good time being mean to that guy. I think that's Eddie Marzon, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. Um, I got to do something real quick, though. All right, you do it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Uh, uh. Woo. Yeah. Ready? Woo. Woo. The second that we brought up Miami Vice, I was like, I need to hear it that is, mashup. So it is an amazing needle drop. Best opening, best opening ever. And then in the director's cut, they start with like, he gets rid I know. Of it. Yeah, it's so weird. It's it such a weird me. decision. It and it's the me. only, isn't that the only thing that's different about the director's yeah, cut? They cut a couple things a little bit shorter. But oh, there, there are 14 more sex scenes in the director's cut, right? <laughs> on on top of the I think, 14 I think that are already there. legitimately, like the Jamie Foxx sex scene is a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, there, that... I I mean I've I've come to love that movie. I mean I think that movie's mileage on uh on them actually not liking each other while they were making it to me is a huge when when I first watched it I was like, "Eh, you can feel it they don't like each other and I wish they had chemistry." And Dan, I mean full credit to you. You were kind of the one that kind of brought me around on that that like when you really watch it it's like way more compelling if Oh yeah. if they don't well, like each other. You- and if because you're listening, they like they're they're kind of yeah. they're you know they're like Jamie Foxx is basically like if you're gonna do this I'm gonna follow you but like I hate you for it so we're just gonna <laughs> like well deal and with if that. you if you can for context and you haven't already seek out the Entertainment Weekly profile about the like this movie because this is really this is when Colin Farrell I think I'm not speaking out of school here I think this is when he hits his like. I need to get clean and sober thing because doesn't he like not remember making it? Well, it looks it looks like he doesn't. Yeah, remember so basically, it. Like, you know, they they film the movie, uh, you know, in uh, I think South America, in the Caribbean, and you know, in in different areas, and I think they wind up in a jungle where there is a skirmish happen. Like there is dangerous. Like there's a tropical there's a tropical storm scenario that that like destroys a setup they have and. And so basically, this is where like, but he, Jamie Foxx had just won an Oscar, and went back to the producers and demanded they give him more money because he had won this Oscar. And I think I don't know if Colin Farrell was making more than he was or making the same amount. And so that was a point of contention. Colin Farrell was like deep down the rabbit hole of drugs and alcohol at that point, and that was the movie where like he left for a quote unquote exhaustion. Right, because they were filming, and I think he was like just partying all the time. And Jamie Foxx, I, I think, was not being very nice on set, you know, allegedly. And I think everything mm. just went way wrong with that movie. And so by the time it came out, they had already kind of put the nails in the coffin. But now, you know, like some of these movies, which is kind of another interesting thing with Colin Farrell, like The New World, Miami Vice, um, you know, to some degree, some of the earlier movies, Phone Booth is the one that kind of jumps out more than any of them. 
they have the love now that they didn't have when they got released. Um, but I think this is when he's like, okay, I'm going to stop fucking around because I might get myself killed. Right. And then yeah, there's a two year break. He makes a Woody Allen movie in London, arguably the most forgettable Woody Allen movie of all of them. Maybe. Wait a second. I don't, all right, uh, when, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, that's a like, long list. But, I, yeah. I mean, look, yeah. I kind of think it's an interesting movie. Ewan McGregor and Colin Farrell, Cassandra's dream. I, yeah, I literally can't remember the name of the movie where there's like Ian McShane is a ghost. Oh, so oh like, bro, you mean um, Scoop? <laughs> sure, yeah, dude, with Hugh Jackman. So like, I actually forgot that movie. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're like, right. There are there are more forgettable. Uh, you're right. There are more forgettable Woody Allen movies. I think Cassandra's Dream, and I, you know, have feelings about Woody Allen. Um, oh, Brian, but before Brian, I had do? those feelings, you're, you're I saw some one, of his movies. You're the only one in the world. <laughs> why Why would anybody ever have feelings about Woody Allen? That's weird. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, first of all, <laughs> I find most of his movies insufferable <laughs> or forgettable. But I find, I think that his like match point Cassandra Dreams, Cassandra's Dream moment was like pretty cool. Like I, I dug it and I'm glad that he stopped doing it because now I don't have to like be one of those people's like oh i can't watch any woody allen movies like you just you have your moment that you'll you know then you're and that's it the one the one thing that i remember from cassandra's dream um is that that was the movie where i think i really was like oh i really like this Haley atwell actress because she's in that yeah and actually the two things i love the philip glass score Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of the two takeaways. Farrell, I think, is obviously, honestly, kind of quite forgettable in that movie. But um, are you kidding yeah. me? Wait a second. I, yeah, no, I he's the, the heart and soul of that movie. I, he's so good. Yeah, he's the guilt, and I understand that. I just, I think the performance is kind of, eh, I, I struggle with it. I almost like that's weird because I, I saw that and I was like, this is, I think, like a side of him that we haven't really seen since, honestly, Phone Booth, where he's not like playing up the machismo he's playing up the woundedness and like i think that cassandra's dream sets him up for a lot of what's great in his later films like cassandra's dream is the precursor to in bruges like in terms of it's the movie that comes before it but also it's the movie that lets him be vulnerable and broken no i think you're right i just think he he ends up doing it way better later on because oh yeah, well hell a yeah. month a month later in bruges comes out and i think in bruges really is the beginning of the rest of his career. I mean, you know, yeah. I think a lot of people would say it's probably the best movie he's in, one of his best performances, right? I think that's not, you know, I think that's, if you said that, you'd get a lot of people who would agree with you. Um, Clearly those people haven't seen Dead Man Down. <laughs> you know what? Let's just do it. Do your Dead Man Down. Talk about Dead Man Down. You love it. Oh, really? Yeah, We're going just do there? It. I, want, I want you to do it. <laughs> has everyone else seen yes, Dead Man Down? Yeah. Or am- I think me and Connor saw it together, right? Yeah, we saw it at the Nighthawk in Brooklyn. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, Dead Man Down uh, by Niels Arden Oplev. Uh, I mean, this is a movie that I had very little like interest in, or that was. It seemed like it was riding a very low wave, even though it, it had a great, great cover. I think of uh, Shine on You, Crazy Diamond in the trailer. Um, but yeah, he like this is again a movie that is weird to think of as being made in 2013 because it already feels like a movie out of step with the times. But he's giving like a super interesting performance. His relationship with uh, Numi Rapace's character and it is great. Dominic Cooper is playing a really interesting character. I mean, this movie 
is so old school and such a weird twisting morality tale. I love it because he's got like a little projector that he uses to like play home movies right. of his like slain family. <laughs> it's it's such a bizarre film, but like I found it to be really like touching and affecting like his relationship with this this broken woman in his apartment building. And um I feel like I was the only person who wrote a, f- a fairly like positive review about it. It it's just one of those seemingly eminently forgettable movies, but only if you I think ignore some of its like true virtues and and think about it in in that kind of way and how it's just one of those small little movies that you can't believe ever got made really. Yeah, I mean I think there's a um I I mean I haven't, you know, felt a need to revisit the movie. Like there was nothing really in it that like said to me like, "Oh yeah, like that movie." But I will say I now that you're talking about it, I do keenly remember looking at their two performances being like, oh yeah, they're doing work though. Like they're, you know, like it's not, uh, he's certainly not phoning it in. And I think that's a thing with him, you know, that's not to say he's never phoned it in, but like even in a, even like in a terrible miss, like Alexander, right? Like he's not phoning it in. He's certainly like there, like nobody phones it in that movie. Everybody's operating at like 12, um, well, I think I think that that's like the arc that you can kind of draw is that like Tigerland, he's definitely trying, but then you get things like maybe American Outlaws, The Recruit, and uh, SWAT, where he's decided that he can kind of coast. Right. He's like, this is like a, a do not act, like no acting required type sure. of thing. But then I think he feels that happening to himself and hits with Alexander and the New World, and clearly one of those is looked at better than the other ones and i think that that's when he he decides like even in something like dead man down i am going to to put something into this like i feel something in this story even in something like total recall honestly the remake of total recall i think you you can be critical of that movie but i think he is trying his damnedest to give a lead performance that has some sort of complexity and no one no one else involved in that movie is allowing for him to kind of fly. But mm-hmm. I, I think after in Bruges, I don't know that he's ever really, you know, uh, you know, like we're saying, coasting ever. Like even in movies like even in like epic misses like Winter's Tale, right? Uh, you know, or the movie called Solace, which came out in 2016, which sat on the shelf for like three years. In Solace, he plays a serial killer, and it's a great performance. He's like a truly evil, like, person who is, you know, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's in that movie. Anthony Hopkins plays like this guy who kind of is touched, right? He can like see. Uh, he has like an ESP type of a thing. Where He's like he a me- is he like a medium, right? Kind Isn't that of, the whole thing? right? Yeah. Like if he, he can like help catch, you know, he's trying to catch uh, Colin Farrell, and Colin Farrell is giving like a truly nasty performance. So point is, like even a movie like that, which you can probably watch on Amazon Prime, you know, the minute after it came out in theaters, and still to this <laughs> day, like he's given his he's given his all, you know, and I think that's all the credit to him. You know what I mean? A movie like London Boulevard, right, which is a William Monaghan. Uh, director, you know, directed movie. The guy who uh, wrote The Departed, The Departed, you know, and that's Kingdom a movie of Heaven, right? He wrote, yeah, wrote Kingdom of Heaven. Mm-hmm. That's a movie where he plays the bodyguard, like the gangster bodyguard driver of a 
stuck up movie star played by Kira Knightley and like, you know, ends up kind of falling in love with her and things go bad. Even in that movie, which is just a kind of a mess, right? Clearly someone who's learning how to direct when you watch that movie. Um, he's doing a lot. So, yeah, I mean, that all, you know, l- lest we forget Horrible Bosses where he's just kind of. Oh, I was so I was great. waiting for my chance to yeah. jump in there. Like 2011, he's in two movies and he's great in both. And they're a side of him that we haven't really seen since. And that's Horrible Bosses and Fright Night. Yeah, I mean, I get no. You don't really get it, and I, I was just thinking Fantastic Beasts, but not really. He kind of doesn't really. Having not seen Fantastic, yeah. no, you're, I mean, you're fine. You can keep it. It's not. <laughs> it's you're not really missing anything. He's not like he doesn't. He's fine. He's pretty good in that movie, but it's like it's not. It's not like a fun Fright Night thing. Like it's like he's yeah. he's so good in Fright Night. He's yeah yeah amazing in Fright Night. I mean, he's a per- he he is. He is the perfect foil for Anton Yelchin. Like those two people, it's like you've got sweet, nerdy, ineffectual Anton Yelchin, and then just God on Earth Colin right. Farrell battling each other. And then in Horrible Bosses, he he does the Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder thing, where he lets himself become just truly disgusting. Right. His comb over still haunts my <laughs> dreams. And then what a, that movie? I was thinking about this recently. What a weird now context movie with that Kevin Spacey performance where he's just this truly evil psych like psychopath. I mean, uh, it's just, it's funny how that stuff can just really, it comes right around, around in a, in really a certain, comes in right a certain way. That's why one, one of my things, like when, when we rightfully collectively oust someone is every now and then I'm like, you know, but like there's so many good people in that movie and there's so many people who apparently don't suck like maybe i sh- i can keep watching it like maybe i don't have to feel bad about like la confidential and you know horrible bosses well, look, because I, I mean yeah i look i subscribe and this is people can feel differently about this and we don't you know need to dive too deeply into this you know me personally i subscribe to the thought of you know you can still watch the art you can still you know admire the art you know if you choose to right i mean i I don't you know i don't you know if you are somebody who does not want to watch a woody allen movie ever again you shouldn't i mean obviously that's your prerogative i mean but yeah i'm look la confidential made me is the movie that made me want to make movies okay so i am not totally understandable yeah i'm not gonna not watch that movie you know and i'm not gonna not love that jack vincennes character but i will also when i watch it from now on know in my head in my heart that this is a man i don't particularly care for right you know so like you know i mean look me and connor talk about this you know this is this is not a one-in-one example but me and connor both openly love tom cruise and we will see all of the mission impossibles that ever come out but you know the guy is implicit or allegedly implicit in a lot of potentially not great stuff with his religion Very bad we're, we're gonna get sued no, you know, allegedly. And, you know, he but you if you can ingest it and still enjoy it, it does not make you a worse person. You know what I mean? It's right. simply I mean, I I recently saw and loved a movie that stars Mel Gibson, and that guy is you know, he's got he's got his stuff going on. And, you know, for me it's What's wrong? It's, Wait, what's never make What's wrong with Mel Gibson? I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was almost he was almost in phone booth. As, as, the as the phone booth, 
Uh, yeah, as the booth. As uh, the no, yeah, he was almost, he actually, he was almost going to direct it and then was almost in it, um, which I think had he been in it now, it would be like retrospectively a really weird performance. You know what I mean? Like uh, just Mel Gibson. Would, which one would he, who would he have been? He was going to be, he was almost the Colin Farrell character. Stu? Yeah. He was almost Stu? Yeah. Unless That's I'm crazy. like misreading this, hang on, I'm gonna go back. But I was like, re- I was like reading it, <laughs> and he was like attached for a minute. I mean, there were a few people attached. Fun, yeah. fun, quick fact: uh, there have been like one or, t- or sorry, two or three like uh, Mark Wahlberg for Colin Farrell swaps. Um, oh, I know one of them was definitely phone booth, and the other was SWAT. And I do think I. It is amazing. Mark Wahlberg wasn't in the movie SWAT. It's crazy. But actually, and SWAT was almost SWAT was almost also uh, Paul Walker and Vin Diesel in the LL Cool J role. But um, the the thing, like the weird thing, watching Phone Booth, and I think Farrell's pretty good in it. I think, um, but I weirdly I was watching it. I was like, this might be a better Mark Wahlberg performance. I was gonna say it's actually it would probably be a better Paul Walker. Phone Booth or SWAT. uh, oh, SWAT. Actually, probably both. I think that <laughs> there was a moment. I think that there was a moment where you could say that, like, Paul Walker and uh, Colin Farrell were interchangeable. Me and me and Connor always said one of the true crimes of you know the sadness of the Paul Walker thing was that in Furious Seven, it finally felt like he was growing into his own goofiness and acknowledging yeah. it on screen and like making fun of it a little bit. And then he fucking died. You know what I mean? It felt like he was. He kind like was of, starting to like actually develop charisma as a like, as like well, a potent, and charisma a in that character actor way, where like yeah. he he's getting getting aging out of the pretty boy thing, and it was helping him. And then you feel like in two or three years he could have been one of the horrible bosses. Well, yeah, sure. like he, right. or he yeah. could have like he could have been cast in something. You know, you would be at Sundance and be like, oh shit, Paul Walker's kind of. Doing something a little interesting here. You know what I Paul mean? Paul Walker plays like the weird dad in this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was yeah, like a little exactly. funny well, I mean, and I don't know. He, you know, him in Pleasantville, I mean, that's he's that's great. a great performance. Yeah. Like he straddles a line there. And um in uh Varsity Blues, he's like really good. I think that like like he he again, like I said, he and Colin Farrell were sort of interchangeable, where it's like we've got this action movie, we need a guy who can plausibly do action and like a little bit of romance. And it's like, well, this guy's hot, and he's got a good smile, and uh, we could put him in. And I think that Paul Walker achieved a level of success in that mold that never asked him to do anything else. And I think that Colin Farrell, you know, just decided that he needed to try to branch out more. And I don't know if it's a question of ambition or just realizing, like, a limitation. And it brings back – it's kind of funny. It brings back what you said before, Brian – if Farrell finds more success early on, maybe it becomes more of a Paul Walker thing and he never challenges himself, mm-hmm. you know, like a sli- little yeah. bit of a sliding door situation. I think that that is 100% true. So what else do we want to say? I mean, we're, we're an hour 30 in. We, we've covered a lot of his career. Is there any kind of, you know, Brian, you have dead man down. Connor, is there any Colin Farrell performance um, that you think has never gotten – you know enough attention he he got short shrift for it um not i mean not not exactly i mean i do think i will say um just generally speaking 
I think people forget how great he is in True Detective season two. Oh, thank God! You um, brought no, that no, up. no. He and I don't. We don't need to like re, you know, litigate all that or anything. But um, he's great. And the one point I wanted to make about him overall, as I was rewatching some of this stuff, the reason he never worked as like the the matinee idol. I think is that when he is leaning into not unlike, honestly, not unlike a Tom Cruise thing a little bit, but like when he's leaning into like the tortured or the crazy in combination with something else, um, I think is when he like really, really soars. Right. Cause mm-hmm. when he just tries to play it straight, like when he's just trying to be charismatic, Jesse James it's like not working. Right? Need, yeah. And he needs that damage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when he really leans into it, and I think the Ray Del Coro character has a ton of that. Um, oh yeah. That you're just, you're like, yes, like I'm here for this. And he just, he's, and maybe it's obviously, maybe it's partly a meta thing. It's because of what we know about him. Right. With like, just with the rehab and, and all that, like there's definitely that element to it, but he, um, he crushes True Detective season two in a way that I honestly like now that the third season has kind of happened and people are like, should I watch the second one? I'm like, like, yes, just watch it. Like for him alone, at least just like he's so good. Um, and I think I think it's a it's a good kind of, I think, case study for like what he can do and do like exceedingly well. I think um similarly like, I basically have the same opinion. Like he he in Tigerland in Intermission in the things that he really like soared in and even in Phone Booth like when he's allowed to either be not a paragon of virtue or to have like the sadness and brokenness in his past that's when he's really good. Like SWAT he's expected to be like a little too clean cut except for like you know he's I don't know. I don't know what the the word is for it. He's like you know a Lothario kind of... He's kind like, of devil, devil of may care. Kind of like, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. But you you almost want... He needs his confidence to be eroded or to have had like his his father beat him when he was younger <laughs> in these movies to really get Jesus. it. Like the new world... <laughs> the new world plays off that in that he, he just like cannot be satisfied. And he's watching this paradise that he wanted to create fall apart. And... I'm so glad you brought up True Detective because I watched season three and I was like, oh, that was really good. And then I was like, I'm going to rewatch season one. And then I did. I was like, that is also still very good. And I'm one of the few people who, in the midst of season two, I was still telling people like, this is not bad. This is simply not the same damn thing as season one. And I was so I was watching the first episode and I was like, maybe I was wrong. Like, maybe this isn't good because it feels a little flatter. And Colin Farrell in this, who I remember loving when I watched it in like contemporaneous with when it was happening, was feeling a little like over the top to me. But then, and I'm not going to play the song, even though I could, um, when they have him sitting in the bar and that, that woman is singing, this is my least favorite life. And you just see the weariness on his face. I like legitimately got chills while he and uh, Vince Vaughn are staring at each other. And then at the end of the second episode, when like he gets knocked down and then the whole next episode is him like trembling and like recovering from like thinking he was going to die. And he really sold you on his wreck in the first like two episodes 
so that he could show you what it looks like when someone who is that screwed up and angry and unhinged like is given a moment of self-reflection and then he just turns it around and that it truly is like a really great performance like and it's almost it's almost like an a, the little microcosm of his whole career like when he's playing it straight just shooting down the center it's kind of boring in a workmanlike way yeah. where you can see that it's fine but it's not what you want but the second that he gets shot with that riot shell and is like given that damage and figures out that he needs to like work on himself, that's when he, he sings. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think two movies I would just recommend that were underseen um, that aren't perfect, but I, I, I have a lot that I like about both of them is Neil Jordan's movie Ondine um, from 2010, mm-hmm. where he basically plays a sad dad, which is kind of, you know, up the avenue of what you're talking about, Brian. And then Peter Weir's movie, The Way Back, which I did, I do think kind of came out later that same year in 2010 and then got a proper release uh, in early 2011, where it's a P, basically a POW movie and um, uh, Colin Farrell has a supporting role. And that movie kind of was, uh, it's a shame. It should be better. Peter Weir's an amazing director. He's actually not made a movie since uh, The Way Back. And um, that always makes me sad because he's uh, one of our one of our great living directors. But those two movies, um, right after In Bruges and right before kind of Horrible Bosses and Total Recall, Dead Man Down and all this, I will say he's the best part of Saving Mr. Banks, which is a, an abominable movie that <laughs> is basically a Disney advertisement for uh. the not anti-Semitic Walt Disney. Um, uh, Colin uh, Farrell is the uh, is the titular Mr. Bank, uh, Mr. Banks, or I guess not technically, he's Travers Goff, but Mr. Banks is based on him. Um, he plays an alcoholic. Pretty good performance. And I think his worst performance that he's ever given is in the movie Pride and Glory, which is a yeah. cop thriller movie where he, I just, he's so over the top. I'll just never fully, I'll never fully come around on that performance. Though I think the movie is actually quite engaging. Um, I, I, and it's a shame because it's Ed Norton's in that movie, Noah Emmerich, um, a couple other people. John Voight is the father in that movie? I believe so. Right? Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a corrupt cop movie. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, do you, Brian, do you like Pride and Glory? Do you, have you seen it? I have not seen it. Yeah, I'd be curious to your opinion. Gavin O'Connor directed that. I mean, it's just, there are like scenes where Colin Farrell, he become, it's kind of the thing I was talking about before. It's like, it introduces this character, and then at a certain point, the character becomes so evil that you're like, well, is this what he was going to be? Like, screenplay? Like, did you promise us this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, were you ever alluding to this? You know? And I think that's kind of a fatal flaw of that movie. But anyway. Also, Roman J. Israel, real quick. Just want to plug that. Great supporting Because people, yeah. I feel like people don't give that movie enough play, and that movie is great. Yeah, that's, That is a movie that I need to see. Yeah, you should definitely watch that. Um, and obviously... I guess I'll, uh, I'll throw it down for Dead Man Down again. People should check that out. <laughs> and um, and look, we always say, what would you? What do you want from him next? I feel like we don't really need to do that on this. He's got stuff coming out. Dumbo. I think he's going to play another sad dad in Dumbo coming out, uh, which Woo. which might be out right now if you're listening to this podcast. He's in. He just got announced that he's in um, the next movie from the guy who gave us uh, Columbus, which is a great movie from yep. a couple of years ago with Haley Lou Richardson. After and after Chow. Yang. Is the after Yang is the yeah. name of the new one, and yeah. that uh, director's name is 
uh, Koganada, who is an artist who he directed, um, uh, yeah, Columbus a couple years ago with John Cho and uh, Haley Lou Richardson. And um, he's got a couple other things coming. You know, he's an interesting actor. I'm happy he's in this kind of sweet spot, this like second sweet spot of his career. And, um, you know, keep making those Yorgos Lanthimos movies, I guess. Right, exactly. <laughs> Just stay, stay in that pocket. Um, I'd like to see, I, um, I was thinking about this. I would like to see him in another starring vehicle that's maybe a little bit of a bigger movie, but still plays to his strengths. Like I would love to see him in like a Shane Black movie. Um, that would be fun. Like just something where he can, you know, maybe he's not the lead, maybe you pair him with, you do like a nice guys type thing where you, you pair him with somebody else. Um, and, but he, but he's allowed to like be funny. And, uh, cause I, that, that's something it's, I feel like it's been a minute since he's done that. And I, I, he's really, I mean, he's got great comedic timing. I feel like a British caper with him and Idris Elbow would really make Ooh, my day. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh. So let's all, let's all go to sleep and pray for that. Yeah, in the meantime, mm. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, Brian, where can, uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on this same podcast feed. This same, uh, sharing, this same one? Sharing the bandwidth Hello. at the film stage show where uh, I'm in charge. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got reviews hitting thefilmstage.com, so you can check those out. I have uh, got a review of Captain Marvel up, and then I'm going to be doing Us and Dumbo, if you can believe it. Um, but hey, Colin Farrell's in it, so maybe it'll be fine. I was going to say, don't forget Colin in your review, dude. Oh, it's gonna be the entire. I would love to write the entire review and just only talk about Colin Farrell. Yeah, Nobody's gonna be like, st- yeah, you will who stopped? Call it, call it Colin Farrell's Dumbo. All right, <laughs> <laughs> Dumbo featuring Colin Farrell. Um, yeah, I mean, who else? It's got a shit ton of people in it because Tim Burton like it's, oh, yeah, it's Keaton, it's Devito, Devito, yeah. Ava Green, of course, the new right. the new who the new muse. Who is voicing Dumbo, though? That's the real question. I think it's Colin Farrell, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. No, it's Gabriel it's Gabriel mocked. <laughs> he threw him that. This is my third podcast <laughs> I, in as many days. So the fact that I have been able to like pull out names yeah. and facts and speak as eloquently as I have is a like mystery to me. You're a hero among men. Um, Connor, where can people find you? In the uh, you can find I'm I'm scruffy looking on Twitter, and you can find my byline occasionally on the film stage or right here on this podcast. And I, oh, that's right. I'm also on every social media at Brian J Rowan. <laughs> and I'm scruffy looking in real life, and you can find me. Uh, at DJ Mecca on Twitter, <laughs> Brian does not have the queued up because it is. I should have no, but it's not the film stage show, so you know you gotta keep the brand the brand. And um, yeah, I don't know. I I write for the film stage and I do this podcast. And I will say, I think sooner rather than later, Brian, perhaps to your uh, to your uh, happiness. I do think we are going to get our own feed soon. The our our own our yes, very own that is, B-side feed. That is that is in the works. Um, yeah, I mean, so Jordan, be... Connor, and I are working on that. So look for that. I don't mind sharing the feed. It's fine. You know what, you know, Brian? We can cannibalize each other's listenership. You know, what, Brian, you can have your feed. Okay, it's time for me to spread my spread my wings. <laughs> my my one legitimate concern recently, because we've been recording so many episodes on the film stages, I'm like, are they, like if people don't have their thing set up to keep every unlistened episode, 
Like if they only keep like the the three most recent, like I do on Overcast, like people are gonna miss your stuff because you'll release an episode and then in two weeks yeah. I'll release five. Yeah, you guys have been crunching them out. But you know, it's you know, look, I mean, and I've said this before. This podcast for me is just ha- it's literally like a distillation of how my mind works. You know, this is talking about actors, and this is almost like a distillation of me and Connor's friendship to some degree is like you talk about these actors and you're like, Hey, Colin Farrell, he's in the new Dumbo movie. You remember SWAT? Right. You remember American outlaws? Right. And and then you talk about that for an hour. So whether people are listening or not, really I'm doing it for myself, but I would love it if people enjoyed it as well. So with all that being said, um, we, we love you, Colin Farrell. Here's to Total Recall 2, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. There's truth that lives, and truth that dies. I don't know which, so never mind.